John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. Hear the word of the Lord. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he, he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we come before you as the holy and the exalted one who dwells in a high and lofty place. The, uh, the train of your robe fills the temple. And those holy angels in your presence cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Father, I thank you that you have maintained a testimony of your holiness and your glory for all of us to see scattered and revealed and portrayed and pictured and illustrated for us throughout the whole earth. There's nowhere that we can look where we are not confronted with the thrice holy God. I thank you, Lord. I thank you that you have exalted your name and you have exalted your word even with your name. Lord, I thank you what you have, for what you have provided to sustain us in our pilgrimage, Lord, to help us in this time of sojourning, Lord, where we are pilgrims and strangers, aliens in this present world, journeying on to the world that is to come, that according to your promise will be a place where righteousness dwells. Lord, we thank you. And we look forward to that, that glorious reality that we will be fully enveloped in one day very soon. And, uh, Father, I pray that you would bless us as we turn to your word together. Would you please fill us with a sense of glory 
Fill us with a sense of wonder. Give us understanding and help us, Lord, in our worship to offer up to you uh, praises that are worthy of your name. Lord, we love to gather together, but we love to gather together in your name to worship you as one people. So please help us here glorify you with one voice. Lord, with one heart, help us strive together for the faith of the gospel. And, uh, and I pray that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you in worship this morning. Father, bless us as we come into your word. Would you please unfold this passage before our eyes and cause us to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're coming back into John 4 um, this week, and I'm, I'm grateful that, uh, I'm not grateful for why we took a break last week, but I am grateful that I had another week to work in this passage because this is an extreme, this has been an extremely difficult section of the Gospel of John for me to work out. Um, and it's not just me. I'm thankful. I was thankful to find many commentators struggling as well. Um, felt like I was in good company. But uh, I think as we, as we come to this section uh, at the end of John chapter 4, it's important for us to keep in mind the thrust of the passage. What is it, what is it really getting at for, for each one of us here in this room? As we sit down and read this section, what is the Holy Spirit drawing to our attention? I believe that that, uh, that main point that God is drawing to our attention is found in John 4:48, where Jesus says to this royal official who has come asking for Jesus to come down and heal his son, Jesus turns to this man and says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. I believe that that is the main emphasis that we are to hear. That's the, the gong, uh, the, the, the crash of the cymbal from this passage that we're to hear and take to heart. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Well, this man had true faith, and we see that manifesting as the passage goes on. Jesus does wind up healing his son and strengthening the man's faith. But the central issue that I believe that draws to our attention, the central issue the Holy Spirit is dealing with, is the difference between truly believing in Jesus as the Messiah versus simply believing in Jesus as a miracle worker. You know, do we believe in Jesus for who he truly is, or are we believing in Jesus because of what he can do? And most of the time, that needs to be further qualified by what he can do for us. Right. Well, let me explain a little bit about why this passage was difficult for me to understand and, and work out for preaching. We begin to see that in, in, in John chapter 4, verses 43 through 45, where we are told about a kind of faith that dishonors Jesus Christ. In John 4, 43 through 44, it says that after two days... Jesus went forth from there into Galilee 
For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, verse 43 is not difficult to understand. The Samaritans that Jesus had just been ministering to in the city of Sychar had asked Jesus to remain with them, to abide with them for a while. And Jesus decided that he would stay with them for two days, which, by the way, is an extreme, uh, which, a great encouragement for you and I as we consider the character of our Lord Jesus. People who seek him for fellowship find him ready to give fellowship. The Samaritans had asked Jesus, please stay with us. Something that all the Jews in Jerusalem would have looked down upon with great disdain. You can see that being played out in the book of Acts, right? After Peter goes to Cornelius, these Gentiles, and after Philip goes down to deal with the Samaritans, there's this sense of disdain that's manifesting towards these people who are non-Jewish. Well, Jesus had no problem staying with these Samaritans. They sought fellowship with him, and he was glad to give it. It's just... Just a parenthetical point there, but verse 43 is simple to understand. The two days had been completed, and Jesus is now continuing on with his journey to Galilee. The difficult part in interpreting this passage begins in verse 44, where we are given the reason for why Jesus moved into the lands of Galilee. It says in verse 44 that he was going into Galilee for or because Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now that seems strange, doesn't it? That the reason Jesus went into Galilee is because he knew that his own country would not honor him? Well, maybe we need to start by asking the question, what does he mean by that? What does it mean when it talks about Jesus' own country? What is he referring to? The the word here uh, used to speak of his country is a word that simply means the lands of his fathers. So it's, it's, in other words, it's where Jesus' family and where his relatives are from, where they're living, where he grew up. Now, because of the specific emphasis on the land of his fathers, his relatives, some people think that Jesus is here talking about the lands of Judea, the lands around Jerusalem, because that is where his family was actually from. You remember in Luke chapter 2, when the census was being made of the whole world, Joseph took Mary away from Nazareth and back to the place of his relatives, Bethlehem, in Judea, right outside of Jerusalem, because that's where his family had descended. That's Luke 2, 3 through 4. So according to people who say that Jesus is talking about uh, Judea, uh, whenever he speaks of his homeland, uh, his own country, they think that Jesus is going away into Galilee because in his own country, that is among the Jews in Judea, Jesus was not being honored. So they weren't receiving him in Jerusalem. They weren't receiving him in Judea. Therefore, he leaves and uh, goes away from them and heads off into Galilee. And that would make sense in light of what we've already seen at the beginning of chapter 4, right? Where Jesus is heading to Galilee because he had heard that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making more disciples than John the Baptist. And they were bothered by that. So the idea of his own country referring to Judea and Jerusalem does make sense. But I think the problem with that interpretation is that every time this word for his own country is used in relation to Jesus, it is specifically speaking about the region of Galilee. Sometimes, like in Luke chapter 4, verse 23, it's specifically speaking about the city of Nazareth, which was in Galilee. 
But here in John chapter 4, when this word is used without reference to a specific city, it's speaking of the region of Galilee as a whole. It's talking about the whole country that's known as Galilee. Like in John chapter 7, verse 41, where the Jews speak of Jesus as generally coming from Galilee. Jesus was seen to be a Galilean. Galilee was his homeland. That's where he grew up. That's where his family and his relatives were living. And so in their minds, this was the land of his fathers. This was his homeland. Now, if you want to know why I went into all that detail, it's because of this. That's what makes these verses so odd, so difficult to interpret. Because if his own country in verse 43 and 44 is talking about the country of Galilee, then this is saying that Jesus went into Galilee because he knew the people in Galilee would not honor him. Now that's odd, but it's not improbable if we think about the nature of Jesus. Jesus was not afraid to confront people in their unbelief, right? He wasn't afraid to talk to people who weren't even going to receive him. He was not afraid to engage them on the level of their unbelief. I praise God that Jesus did that in my own life. Jesus wasn't afraid to step into my life and kick the door in and expose my unbelief and my sin and my godlessness. He wasn't afraid to make me see where I wasn't really believing in him, even though I thought I was. I, I hope that you th you're thankful for that as well. Jesus is not afraid to confront sinners in their unbelief. He knew that these Galileans did not honor him for who he was, who he is, and so he decides to go into the lands of Galilee in order to shine the light of his glory upon the darkness of their unbelief. He's going to expose them with the end of gathering in a harvest from among them. Right? Yeah, amen, Eger. Amen. I know your voice, brother. Yeah. Now, so we can understand it's not improbable for Jesus to go forth into a land because he knows people aren't believing in him. He's going to go confront them. That's, that's not the most difficult part of this section. The most difficult part really comes to play in verse 45, where it says that Jesus was, was going into Galilee because a prophet has no honor in his own country. So, or therefore, in light of that fact, when Jesus came to Galilee, it says, the Galileans received him. There's the challenging part. They received him, it says. That word, they, they reached out and grabbed a hold of him. That's the sense here, that they, they were there happily and joyfully welcoming him as he came into their country. Now, doesn't that sound as if Jesus was being honored when he came into their country? Jesus said very clearly, a prophet has no honor in his own country. And yet here, doesn't it seem like Jesus is receiving at least a little measure of honor? He's like their honored guest and they're welcoming him. So what does Jesus mean by saying that he, as a prophet, has no honor in his own country in light of the fact that he knew that Galileans would welcome him? D.A. Carson, in offering his own understanding of these difficult verses, pointed out that he found at least 10 different solutions being proposed by various commentators trying to make sense of what Jesus is talking about in these verses. 
Now, I hope you understand that when we come to a difficult passage like this, one thing that we need to take to heart and keep in mind is that without exception, every time we come to a difficult section of Scripture, the Holy Spirit has given us the key to unlock the, or uh, to, to unravel the mystery right there in the passage itself. So without exception, the answer to any riddle found in the Scriptures is somewhere placed within the passage itself. It simply needs to be recognized and then applied to the story. So, for example, right here in verse 45, the Holy Spirit, I think, has given us the key to understanding what these verses are talking about, right at the end of verse 45, where we are given the reason why the Galileans were receiving him. Why were they receiving Jesus when he came to them? Somebody say it. Because they saw all the signs that he was doing down in Jerusalem, for they themselves were there, right? So we're dealing with Galilean Jews who were in Jerusalem at the last Passover feast, right? And when we saw what happened at that Passover feast at the end of John chapter 2, right? Jesus was performing many signs, many miracles, and it says that many were believing in him, right? Well, these Galileans were among them. The, the way that this is worded in Greek makes very clear that the only reason why Jesus found a warm welcome when he came into Galilee was because of the signs and the miracles that these Galilean Jews had seen Jesus doing. So when Jesus came to them, they weren't excited over who he was. They weren't anticipating with, with eager expectation a further unfolding of the mysteries of God revealed in His Word. They weren't attached to His teaching. Their hearts weren't gripped by what He was saying. What they were excited about was Jesus, the miracle worker. Here He is. He's among us. This is our boy. He's from, he's from just down the street. The connection between verses 44 and 45 makes clear that that kind of faith in Jesus that welcomes him for those reasons is not the kind of faith that truly honors him. And we've already seen that in John, right? John 2, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they observed the signs which he was doing. They were seeing the miracles. They were watching the wonders unfold. And they were all beginning to believe in Jesus. And yet, what does Jesus do in response to that faith? He withdraws from it. Right? It says in verse 24 that Jesus on his part, even though they were trusting in him, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. And there's the same word in Greek for belief here is being used in relation to the people and in relation to Jesus. They were believing in Jesus, but Jesus was not believing in them. Their profession was false. Jesus knew that the kind of faith that they had was not genuine. It was not a deep-rooted, solid trust in the person of Jesus. It was a shallow kind of faith that was only sustained by hype and emotionalism. A kind of faith that would only be sustained by the wow factor of seeing miracles being performed by Jesus. And that kind of faith only lasts so long as Jesus keeps doing miracles. The moment Jesus stops indulging their craving for the miraculous, that kind of faith becomes nothing more than a cut flower. 
It may, it may retain its color and its beauty for a short period of time, but the moment that that flower is cut, the life of the flower begins to fade away and its glory disappears. That's the kind of faith in Jesus that is resting solely on miracles. It's nothing more than the glory of a cut flower. It's soon disappearing. That's, that's the kind of faith that these Galileans had. And, and as the Holy Spirit makes clear, that's not the kind of faith that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 39, that the desire that craves miracles and signs and wonders is an evil and adulterous desire. He said it's an evil and adulterous generation that craves and seeks after signs. It's evil not to believe in Jesus unless he does some kind of miracle for you. That's the evil. Jesus, I'll make a deal with you. You, you do this for me. You, you do this miracle on my behalf, and then I'll believe in you. Well, wait. I, I've already done all of these miracles back here proving who I am. Is, is that not enough? Well, Jesus, I know. I know you, you did those miracles back then, but that was a long time ago, and that wasn't in my life. Jesus says that's an evil desire because it's not a desire that's arising out of a firm trust in him and a sincere commitment to him. It's, it's a desire that arises from you sitting as judge over Jesus, determining whether or not he's worthy of your faith. And he even calls this craving adulterous, and you understand why. It's adulterous because when you're craving signs and wonders and miracles from Jesus as the means or the basis upon which you're going to believe in him, all you're doing is seeking Jesus in order to use him for what he can give you. You're using Jesus for what you can get out of Jesus. And that attachment to Jesus will depart from him and go somewhere else the moment he doesn't give you what you want. You know, the root of that kind of faith is far more common and pervasive than what many of us might expect. It could manifest itself in this way, where you make a deal with Jesus, and maybe you have a sick loved one, and you say to Jesus, look, Jesus, I will serve, and I will worship, and I will love and obey you if you do this miracle and heal this person. But if you don't, I'm out of here. Or maybe it manifests in, in, in other various forms of conditional faith, like foxhole conversions, right? Jesus, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to worship you. I'm, if you get me out of this mess, I will devote the rest of my life to you. You know what happened to the majority of foxhole conversions? They disappear as soon as the person is out of danger. That says a couple of things. It says that in our conscience, we fear God and we fear the reality of his judgment. We know what's coming in death. But it also says that that faith that's manifest in those moments is not genuine faith because it doesn't last. Or maybe it's the type of conditional faith in Jesus that says to Jesus, Lord, I'm going to serve you as long as my bank account stays balanced. As long as my church maintains its uh, non-profit status so that my gifts to you can be tax-exempt. You guys understand that that's going away. 
Now, I'm not kidding. I mean, after the message last week, you don't think I'm on some list somewhere? Yeah, I, I know that sounds funny, but listen, we, have you ever seen what communists do when they take over a country? They are ruthless. You don't believe that can happen here? Look around you. Don't you see the communism all around you? That's a different, that's a different soapbox. But, Lord, I'm going to serve you as, as long as I don't get in trouble for serving you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve you, Lord, if you keep my refrigerator full or if you keep me from trials and suffering. But the moment you begin to let me have trials and suffering in that moment, I'm going to start doubting your goodness and your love towards me and your faithfulness towards me. In that moment, I'm going to know that you're not trustworthy. Lord, I'll serve you if you fix my marriage. You know, I grew up in a church where that was the appeal. I didn't grow up there. I was saved in a church where that was the appeal. Come to Jesus and he'll, make, he'll balance your checkbook, right? This was 20 years ago, so people were still using checkbooks a lot. <laughs> Come to Jesus. He's going to fix your marriage. Come to Jesus. He's going to give you a great job and you're going to be successful in your career. What about the call of Jesus that says, come to me and take up your cross and die? Jesus says in Luke 14, if you're not willing to give up everything in your life in order to serve him, if you're not willing to love him even more than your own wife and husband and children and father and mother, even more than your own life, Jesus says, you are not worthy of me. That's the call of the gospel. Not come to Jesus so he can be the cherry on top of your life, but come to Jesus so that he can radically uproot and transform you in your life. It's glorious, glorious, but dying is costly. In this kind of conditional faith, these various forms of conditional faith, what if following Jesus means that you get none of that? What if following Jesus means rather than having your refrigerator full, it's actually going to be empty? Rather than keeping your job and having a good career, what if it means you're going to lose it all? Do you still believe that he's worthy of your faith and trust and obedience without those things? You know, I know a man, a dear friend of mine, who when he came to Christ, it ruined his marriage. His wife left him when he became a true Christian. He started living a holy life for the glory of Jesus. He started saying, you know, I really don't want to watch these kinds of things on TV. I don't, I don't really want to do these kinds of things. And I don't want to go drink anymore. I don't want to party. His wife left him for that. Are you prepared for something like that? Are you prepared for, to pay that cost in following Jesus? You know, all that these things do, among the many problems with, with that kind of faith, is the fact that it is built on Jesus constantly needing to prove himself to you in new and in various ways. So in effect, Jesus is always on the chopping block. And you're laying out these conditions with the, 
with the cleaver in your hand. And you're saying, Jesus, if you don't do this, i got to chop you out of my life and move on to something else. Because it's not working. You know, that's not faith and that's not love. That is attempting to use Jesus as a means of serving yourself. And my friends, Jesus will not let himself be used. Jesus is no one's slave. He doesn't say, how high, when we in our carnal desires tell him to jump. He doesn't obey our command. You either receive Jesus as he offers himself to you, or he will not receive you. Let me say that again. You will either receive Jesus as Jesus offers himself to you, or he will not accept you. Jesus has performed miracles, many of them, and he has done wondrous deeds. He has perfectly unveiled his glory for everyone to see. And that unveiling has been preserved for us in this perfect record of his life. A faith where that is not enough is not a faith that truly has accepted Jesus on his terms. In fact, it's that kind of faith that Jesus resists, right? That's what's going on here in Galilee. Jesus rebukes, seemingly rebukes this man, saying, you just won't believe unless I do miracles and signs for you, will you? Jesus is withdrawing those miracles because all they were doing was further uh, solidifying within the hearts and minds of the people a false faith in him. So he comes to them without miracles, offering himself as he is with nothing but his teaching to convict them and convince them. Now this passage, as we begin to, uh, I mean, we're kind of coming to the end. We're like the mid part, midway, all right? So this passage brings up a a difficult issue that we need to work out. Um, Not just textually, right? I mean, trying to figure out what, what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about not receiving honor from his own country. But, but there's the other issue that we need to work out, which is the relationship between faith and miracles. What is the relationship between faith and miracles? You know, the point of this message is not to argue that miracles are unimportant or that miracles don't happen. Miracles happen all the time. I have experienced miracles from God's hand in my own life. Things, changes, radical changes that have happened that I firmly believe were the miracles, miracles from the hand of God. I'm not trying to say that miracles are unimportant. They serve a very important role in confirming the truth about who Jesus truly is, as well as strengthening the faith of true believers. But... What I'm trying to say is that faith, true faith, does not rest in miracles. It is not dependent upon them. So I've got five thoughts here that I believe will unfold this relationship between faith and miracles. It's not everything I could say, but I think these are the most important things to say. Number one, the danger is that you can be so enamored by signs and wonders that Jesus does 
you completely miss out on Jesus himself. You can be so wowed, so enamored over the things, the signs and wonders that Jesus does that you could completely miss out on Jesus himself. That's what's happening here in Galilee. That's why Jesus is not doing miracles in Galilee. That's exactly what happened to the majority of Jews in Jesus' day, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, it says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs as they come to be confronted with the message of the gospel. They're saying, give me a sign to prove it. You know what? That same spirit lasts up to this day. I just witnessed to a Jewish family two months ago here in the parking lot out in Oak Ridge, here, right, at Oak Ridge Community Church. The very thing they were asking for were the signs that prove Jesus is the Messiah. Give me a sign. The Jews ask for signs, and what's the result of that? Verse 23, Jesus becomes a stumbling block to them. See, in their demand for signs, the majority of Jewish people have missed out on their Messiah. You know, the only and the greatest and the all-sufficient sign that any of us need to believe in order to know the legitimacy of Christ was given 2,000 years ago when the Father raised Him from the dead. That's the sign that we go out proclaiming to all the nations. Acts 17, God has borne witness to all men that Jesus is judge and that one day he's going to return to judge the world in righteousness. And the proof that he's given of that reality, of that fact, is his resurrection from the dead. If that's not enough for you, you're not going to believe anything else. You remember the parable, Luke 16? Even that in and of itself is not enough to bring someone to faith. You can read that later. I don't have time to go into it, but go read Luke 16. Jesus' resurrection was his universal proof to all nations that he truly is Christ and that he truly is Lord and that he is worthy of our trust. And on that basis, he demands our full allegiance. If that's not enough for you, then you have missed Jesus. In fact, Jesus warns us that in the end, those who are seeking after signs will be those who are most easily deceived and led astray by signs. Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says, false Christ and false prophets are going to arise and they will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, even if possible, the elect. Don't fall into the naturalism of the day that believes that the uh, demons and Satan are not real. They are very real. What what was it, the Grammys? Is that what just happened? Yeah. I I didn't watch it, but I've heard all about it. I've heard many of you have come up and said, did you hear? Did you see what they did? Why does it surprise us? Even if it's a show, even if it's all a sham and they're just trying to make a joke, you're really going to joke about that? You're going to have CBS tweeting out to to, to the whole nation like, can't wait to worship. Come on, guys. Why are we surprised? They've been worshiping the the devil for a lot longer than than, than that, that tweet. Jesus warns, those who are after signs and wonders will be open to being misled by signs and wonders from false Christ and false prophets. Revelation 13, 11 through 18, specifically verse 14. 
Jesus warns us that the time will come when the beast of the Antichrist will be enabled to perform many signs and wonders with which he will lead many people astray. If whatever faith you have is built upon the wow factor, if it's looking for the next sign and the next miracle and the next wonder to be done in order to sustain your belief in something supernatural, then you will be among the first ones led astray by these false signs and these false wonders. So if you're holding fast to miracles as the evidence of true spirituality or of truly walking with God, then you are leaving yourself open to being deceived and led astray from Christ. Again, don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with miracles. They serve an important function, but sometimes our fixation on the miracles and experiencing the supernatural can become the greatest hindrance to experiencing a living relationship with Christ himself. You guys still awake, or did I put you to sleep yet? It's only, it's only been 30 minutes, I think. The clock might be slow, I don't know. The Gospel of John hammers this over and over again, and I don't, I, I don't want to belabor the point. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but you can be so enamored with signs that you completely miss out on Jesus. And we're going to see this many different times in the Gospel of John. Signs and wonders and miracles will never be enough to bring any sinner to faith in and of themselves. John 3, verse 2, right? Nicodemus came to Jesus saying, We know that you were sent from God as a teacher. We know you were sent from God to teach us something because of the signs that you do. No one could do the things that you do unless God were with him. And what does Jesus say? You got it, Nicodemus. You got faith. You're really believing in me now. No, Jesus says, you still don't see the kingdom of heaven. You can see the signs. You can see the wonders. You can see Jesus as someone really important and really special. And even then, not see Jesus for who he truly is. Jesus says, you got to be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of heaven. The spirit of God has to awaken you to true faith if you're going to truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus had just fed a multitude with bread. He says uh, in 26, these people, as he went away, he crossed over the lake, and these people spent all night long running after Jesus. They, they traversed probably 15, 20 miles at night. And they caught up to Jesus the next day, and Jesus looks at them and says, you're not seeking me because you saw signs and understood their significance. You're seeking me because you got your bellies full of bread. Jesus had just performed a miracle, and it had not brought them to true saving faith in him. All they wanted was the next thing that Jesus was able to give them. That's why they wanted to make him a king, by the way. We're going to see this when we get there, but they wanted to make him a king at that point because Jesus was giving them everything they wanted. Here's our king. John 12, 37, it says that even though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, what was the outcome? They still were not believing in him. Jesus could have multiplied signs and wonders a thousand times over. And all of those miracles would never have been enough to bring them to true saving faith. Because people can become so enamored by the miracles that they entirely miss the glory of the person who performed those miracles. Which leads to point number two. 
they're not all that long. Number two, true faith does not look to miracles. It looks through miracles to see Jesus. True faith does not look to miracles. True faith looks through miracles to see Jesus. Now, as the reformers cried out, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in what? In Christ alone. I'm proud of you. Those are important declarations of faith. We need to make sure we have those in our heart. The reformers cried out, salvation is by grace alone, it's through faith alone, and it's in Christ alone. Not faith in Christ plus his signs, wonders, and miracles. Not faith in Christ because of his miracles exclusively. But faith in the reality to which those miracles were pointing, the glory of his person. So when we see Christ's miracles, we have to recognize that all of them were simply demonstrations of who he really is. So for example, they were demonstrating his intrinsic glory and worth as he brought miraculous signs into this world to confront our darkness. They were were expressions of the greatness of his power. That he can do things that we can't do. They were extensions of his sovereignty. They were revealing the extent of his sovereignty down to the diseases that afflict us. Where Jesus could command a disease to let loose of somebody and it would obey his command. It's like Jesus walking on water and the disciples when they got back in the boat said, What manner of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this that can walk on water? Yes, they were amazed at the miracle, but it was, it was directing their attention to the person who performed that miracle. What is he if he can do this? Miracles were given by Christ in order to, to demonstrate the reach of his mastery over this fallen world and the, and, the, and the full extent of his dominion that he came to take. He came to fulfill Genesis 1.28 as the perfect man. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He's doing that right now through the church. His miracles deployed all that he is for the sake of our salvation. They revealed the sincerity of his compassion. When he reached out and touched the leper, after the leper said, I know that you can heal me. But I don't know if you're willing to heal me. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and he said, I'm willing, be cleansed. That's the depth of his his compassion being revealed through that miracle. Or the reality of his grace or the extension of his mercy or the promise and proof of the great love of God that's been revealed through us or through Christ to us. That is what all of Christ's miracles were designed to show us. They were designed to prove the sufficiency and the greatness of the one who came to be our eternal Savior. And so when you look at these miracles of Jesus in his word, your attention should be drawn through them to Jesus. Say, what manner of man is this? A glorious man. That leads us to a third point. True faith does not crave miracles, but it can be strengthened by miracles. 
True faith does not crave miracles, but it can be strengthened by miracles. We see that in the way that uh, in, in Jesus healing this royal official son. Jesus heals this man's son with a word, right? And you see in John uh, 4.50, verse 50, that this man had enough faith in Jesus to, to take Jesus at his word. The man didn't have to see the miracle be done in order to believe in Jesus. He already believed in Jesus. And he was now able to take Jesus at his word. But notice the result of that in verse 53. He took Jesus at his word and he started off on his way. And then it says at the very end, once he found out that his son had been healed at the exact time that Jesus told him that his son now lives, verse 53 says, he himself believed in all of his household. Now it's important to notice there, he was already believing before that miracle took place. Or at least as that miracle was taking place. What happened once he saw the result of Jesus' great work? His faith was strengthened. And he had an even, even deeper conviction in the reality that Jesus truly is the Messiah. So for the true believer, one who already has faith, miracles that Jesus may do for us are the means to draw out and strengthen our faith in him. At least they can serve that way. But that leads to number four. Point number four. That the most important purpose of Christ's miracles is to demonstrate the truthfulness of his message. The most important point of Christ's miracles is to demonstrate the truthfulness of his message. That's what all of Jesus' miracles and signs and wonders were designed to do. So you see this in John 10, verse 24 to 25. The Jews came to Jesus and they said to Jesus, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're truly the Christ, then tell us plainly. Jesus said in response, I've already told you, and you don't believe. I've already given you that word about me being the Messiah. I've already confessed it to you, and you still don't believe. He says, and if you don't believe, then believe the works that I do in my Father's name, because these testify about me, right? John 10, 37 through 38, if I do not do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you might know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. You see the purpose of the miracles there. It's not, it's not to wow people with Jesus, the mighty miracle worker. It's to show us the connection between Jesus and the Father. It's the Father's amen in testimony that everything Jesus said was true. That's what every miracle demonstrates. Every miracle is the Father's stamp of approval on the teaching of His Son, in other words. It was the Father's amen, climaxing in that greatest of all of Jesus' miracles, His resurrection from the dead. And they were all ordered by God the Father. They were all ordered by God to be the Father's open expression of confirmation on Jesus' word. You see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, where those who, who went out proclaiming the message that Jesus proclaimed, so the word of the gospel was initially preached by the Lord himself, and then it was proclaimed throughout the whole world by those who heard. Who's that talking about? Who are those eyewitnesses that Jesus chose to be his, his witness bearers before the nations? They were the apostles, Right? So Jesus gave us this word, and then it came to us by those who heard, and then notice this. And God the Father, speaking of the Father, 
also testified with the apostles both by signs and wonders and various miracles as well as by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. See, the miracles that were performed by the apostles were nothing other than God the Father testifying to the truthfulness of the gospel they preached. And if I can just make this comment, uh, anybody in here have much experience with Pentecostals or Assemblies of God people? Yeah. By the way, speaking to people who may be of that flavor, not that you are, if you have experience with, with them, I'm not charging you with that. But it's interesting to notice that in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, that according to John, those miracles are not necessarily to be repeated in action, but they are continuing to be confirmed through the truthful witness of the gospel. We'll unpack that more fully when we get there, but you notice what John says there. Jesus did many other signs, many other signs. But these have been written so that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is passing on this faithful record of the miracles that Jesus did as a witness of those miracles to us today. We'll we'll get into more the significance of that when we eventually get there, if I don't die first. But... My point is that every time you read in Scripture about a miracle that Jesus performed, the Father himself is testifying to you through that record of the miracles of his Son so that you would truly come to believe in Jesus or have your faith in him strengthened. So miracles are like servants appointed by God to confirm the truthfulness of his word. And that leads to point five. True faith is not built on signs, wonders, and miracles. It's built upon and strengthened by God's word. True faith is not built on signs, wonders, and miracles. It is built upon and strengthened by, primarily, God's word. We do not go around preaching miracles in the name of Jesus. Somebody just had a plane ride with another guy that was doing Exactly that. He was preaching miracles in the name of Jesus. We don't do that as faithful witnesses of the gospel. We don't go around proclaiming miracles. We don't put a sign out in front of Oak Ridge Community Church saying, Miracles done here, stop by. That's not our message to the world. Our message is not a message of miracles, it's a message of Jesus. We preach a message. We we feast on a word that was given to us by God the Father through His Son. We preach Christ and Him crucified. Yes, a stumbling block to those who are seeking signs. But it is the message of the very power of God to everyone who is called. Yeah, the, the, the ungodly world is going to crave signs. They're going to want miracles being done. But that's not what we give them. We give them Jesus as Jesus gives Himself to us. It's exactly what what, what Paul tells us in Acts 20, verse 32, that it's the message about Jesus that builds us up and strengthens us with supernatural grace to endure in the faith until the day of Christ's glory. 
Paul says, I now commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and strengthen you along with all those who are being sanctified to give you the inheritance. See, Christians, at the heart of it, Christians are a people who by God's grace applied by the Spirit, have been utterly captivated by the message of God's Word. If you are not captivated by the Scriptures of God, then the Holy Spirit is not working in you. Do you understand that? I don't mean to, I don't mean to sound so like, like in your face, but I want you to get this. Eternity is at stake. Your eternity is at stake. It's being revealed by the way you interact with God through His Word. Christians are a people who, by God's grace, have the Word of God applied by the Holy Spirit so richly in their hearts that they are utterly taken up in it. It's that Jeremiah phrase, I can't remember exactly where it's found, but your words were found and I ate them, Jeremiah says. And they became to me the joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. It is our love for the word and our interaction with God in his word that reveals our attachment to him. Some people think that this, this is actually the weakness of modern Christianity. That we need signs and we need wonders in order to win the world and show them that there is real power in Christianity. They don't need a book to be given to them. They need a miracle to be shown to them. When has that ever worked? Read in the book and see that that was never enough to bring anyone to faith. See, the the glory of the Christian religion is not that we are a bunch of people who are being wowed and duped by signs and wonders and miracles. Whether real or perceived. That's not the glory of Christianity. The glory of living the Christian life is that we are enamored and wowed by a glorious message. Colossians 2, 8, we are captivated by Christ. That's Christianity, that we have been taken captive by Jesus and we can't let him go. Nothing else satisfies. This is, in one sense, the inexplicable glory of the Christian life, that God sustains his people not through signs and wonders and miracles, but by feeding his grace to their souls through his word. This is what makes it so inexplicable to the world. This is why it's such a marvel. This is why we shouldn't be ashamed of being a peculiar people among the world. Because it's the glory of God manifesting through us when His Word changes us and shapes us and makes us more than what we could be and more than what we, than what we ever were on our own. It's the power of God reaching to us through His Word that causes that change. The world world needs to see that. See, it's probably better to say that God performs the greatest miracle in a person's life in connection with and through his word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 
makes clear that it's the word of God that is God's appointed means of deepening and increasing our real fellowship with him. It is, it, it's, it's the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. Now, those of you who are truly believing in this room, you know exactly what that's talking about. When you come to God and his word and you feel the quickening of your soul through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and your heart is being rent open, just ripped apart by what God's word has to say, you're being broken over your sin. You're being, you're being humiliated and humbled before his holy presence. You're getting this greater sense of the reality of God's nature and the righteousness of his judgment and the power and the, and the true impact of his holiness. You're, you're sensing that in your own soul as you sit before his word. And then along with that conviction comes this firm hope in Jesus Christ alongside of it, calling you to put your faith in Jesus all the more. That's the Spirit's work. That's the Spirit's work of molding and shaping you as the potter shapes the clay. Those of you who believe the Word of God performs its work in you. That is God's supernatural means of sustaining you in the Christian life. You know, everything in our lives, everything in our relationship with God, everything in our worship of his holy name comes back to this. It comes back to our connection to God through his word. Romans 10, 17. It's the word that God uses to awaken faith. I don't have any of these listed here, so you have to write them down. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. It, it's the word that is the spirit's chosen weapon that he uses to wage his holy war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ephesians, or, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4, it's, it's the, 12 and 13. It's the word that is the means by which God brings a sinner into, into the reality of future judgment. Where the word of God is used by the power of God to lay that sinner open and make him or her understand the reality of the judgment that's coming. It divides us down to bone and marrow. It, explains, it, 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 it separates between spirit and soul. It, it brings us, it brings us uh, to lay us completely bare before the judgment seat of God. That's the word of God. Before the one with whom we have to do. If you don't know that power and that wonder of meeting with God in his word, then my friend, you've missed him. And if you do know that power, then you know that, that nothing of lesser glory or lesser power will ever satisfy your heart. You've been ruined to all the things of the world because you have experienced the glory of God shining out from his word. That's what we seek after in the Word of God. People who disparage the Word of God in favor of miracles are only revealing their own ignorance of, of true spirituality in a true relationship with God. It's God's Word that revives our hearts, Psalm 119. It's God's Word that causes us to tremble with holy fear before Him, Isaiah 66, verse 1. It's God's word that ministers all of his power for life and godliness to us because it's in his word that we gain the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. 2 Peter 1, I believe it's verse 3. 
That means that rather than looking to Jesus as the miracle worker, the only way to honor him is to seek him and to receive him and to experience him and enjoy fellowship with him in and through his word. So that's what we give ourselves to. We, devour, we devote ourselves to reading plans and to memorizing Scripture and to meditating on Christ as He's revealed through His Word until the glory of Christ is more fully realized in our hearts. That's what the supernatural work of God through His Word truly is. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. That in Christ we have the prophetic Word made more sure. Now notice this. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. That is an experiential reality of the glory of Christ that is obtained only by meditating upon and coming to God in His Word. You're paying attention to it. And that light eventually will shine upon your hearts with more glory than you could ever imagine. So there's the encouragement, beloved. Don't seek Jesus for his miracles. Seek Jesus in his word. And the greatest miracle of all, that strengthening of the soul, that sanctifying of the heart, that purifying of the mind, that increase of the fear of God and the love of God, that will be furthered in your own heart as you devote yourself to him and his word. So let's pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Let's pray with me. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the holy word that you've passed on to us. Lord, we don't, we don't worship the Bible. We worship you as the God of the Bible. And, uh, you've exalted your word, even with your name. Lord, would you please help us see and honor and glorify you in light of that. Help us as we worship you now, Lord, in Jesus' name.